0: Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and served as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com.
1: Good afternoon, happy Valentine's Day, and welcome to today's webinar, How is the Inflation Reduction Act Affecting Clean Energy Developers? I am Scott Elias. I am the Vice President of Policy and Market Development at Clean Capital. I recently joined the Clean Capital team to lead our public policy engagement, overseeing our internal and external responses to legislative and regulatory policy changes in our target states, and I represent Clean Capital and trade associations, policy forums, and regulatory agencies to keep our team and our partners updated on impactful policy changes. And I want to thank you for joining us today. Today, approximately six months from the IRA's passage, we have an opportunity to reflect on the first six months of the most ambitious climate law in our nation's history, what the industry and federal agencies are still working on to implement it, and most importantly for most of you, what this all means for clean energy development. And today is a pretty good day to have this conversation because yesterday, the Department of Treasury and the Internal Revenue Service, in partnership with the Department of Energy, released initial guidance on the low income communities bonus credit program as well as initial guidance on an expanded advanced energy project credit program, which hopes to usher in a new era of clean energy manufacturing leadership in the United States. Just a couple of final notes before we begin. We recognize that a lot of IRA implementation and guidance is still being drafted. Some of it actually just came out less than 24 hours ago and more guidance is expected in the coming days, weeks and months. So everyone should understand that some of the panelists' answers today are going to be guided by interactions they have had with government agencies and personnel, and the situation is evolving. But now let's meet our experts. Today, we are lucky to have IRA expert Elizabeth Gore, who brings decades of experience working in Washington, D.C. as Senior Vice President for Political Affairs at Environmental Defense Fund, where Elizabeth leads a team of lobbyists and advocates aimed at creating cleaner air and water, safer communities, healthier kids, and a livable planet. She also works with EDF's partners across the political spectrum and works to take EDF policy goals and make them a reality. Our other panelist is tax expert Elizabeth Krauss, a partner at K&L Gates. Elizabeth Krauss provides business focused solutions for US federal, state, and international tax problems in a variety of transactions and investment structures. Elizabeth works hand in hand with clients to create and implement practical and efficient international and domestic corporate structures negotiate tax-focused and tax-informed provisions in a variety of contracts, and leads transactions, particularly in the renewable energy industries. And now I will turn things over to our moderator, co-founder, and president of Clean Capital, John Powers.
0: Thanks so much, Scott. And thank you to all of our webinar participants today, as well as our experts-only listeners, as this podcast is being distributed in a really timely fashion for an incredibly important topic First, I want to welcome everyone on Valentine's Day. For those of us who love clean energy, and hope to be celebrating it for decades to come. Before we dive into this really important topic, I just want to spend a second talking about clean capital and who we are. Clean capital launched in 2015 with sort of a mission to bring a better cost of capital into the clean energy space to accelerate the deployment of projects. And also we developed a tech platform to help us underwrite assets really more efficiently. We're driving forward to really address the urgent threat of climate change by trying to get more projects in the ground. Uh, Since launching, we've deployed over a billion dollars, have acquired over 400 megawatts uh, in the DG space, and are really helping to lead the way in bringing efficiency into the space to continue to accelerate growth in the market that we so care about. Next slide. So, what are we looking to do? We we A lot of folks know us originally as uh, a private yieldco buying up operating assets because that's what we did for the first few years of a comp- our company. But now over the last two years, we've really accelerated into construction. Uh, we are investing in early developers, which I'll talk about more in a second. And we're doing energy as storage as well. We you know are even looking to be going beyond these asset classes down the road. But this is the area where we see a tremendous amount of opportunity in what I call the middle market, or we call the middle market not resi, not large-scale utility, uh, but things like community solar, as well as rooftops, commercial, industrial, mush market, et cetera. Next slide. We're operating now in uh, over 26 states, including Guam and Hawaii. Where we are on the way to be the largest developer in Alaska, which is super exciting. And you know, we are not, uh, what we really do is specialize in being able to look into these emerging markets, uh, as well as the established markets and be able to execute on bringing some of the smartest capital into those markets so we can continue to get more assets in the ground. We are, next slide, we're currently looking really to grow some of our partnerships. So as I mentioned, you know, we're not just buying operating assets anymore, but we are looking to put rocket fuel into the industry. So we have uh, worked, for instance, last year, we had a full acquisition of a firm called BQ Energy, which is doing solar on brownfields nationwide. Uh, We've made a minority investment uh, in a firm in Alaska uh, called Renewable IPP, uh, and they're really providing them the capital they need to grow their team and to get more projects in the ground. Uh, in a, For the firm in Minnesota, we, we put a convertible node in place to give them some capital to accelerate their growth uh, and and, and uh, get more of their team working on the projects that they really uh, want to focus on, uh, as well as you know, really startup developers who just need some bandwidth uh, and support to get going. So, you know, we don't want to just put our money where our mouth is. We're also really looking to help developers with providing some shared services, things like marketing, as well as policy resources, as they look to enter new markets and, and figure out the landscape. We're very excited about what the future holds for clean energy and re- intend to be one of the key players in helping to finance that. the, the solutions we need to solve climate change. But on to the, co- the topic at hand. Uh, as Scott mentioned with the announcements yesterday, uh, this is a very timely conversation. But most, you know, a lot of folks in the webinar today don't have the uh, footprint in Washington to really track what's happening. And so I've, we've asked uh, Elizabeth Kraus and Elizabeth Gore to join us to talk about not only what's in the landmark legislation that passed last summer, but what's being done today to execute and implement that. You know, I think people obviously follow uh, how the bill becomes a law, but really now the next work is the dirty work of getting this in place that shouldn't use the term dirty work, but the work to get this in place and executed. Um, So the first, this is going to be a series of segments. We're going to start at a high level, get into specific parts of the legislation uh, that focuses on development developers as well as storage, and then open a &A. Q&A. In this first segment, I want to, I've asked uh, both of our speakers to talk a little bit about the overview of the legislation itself, the process to get it implemented, and some of the barriers. So I'm going to start with Elizabeth Gore. Elizabeth, you know, we're going to get into the tax portion of this with Elizabeth Krauss. But for those that are just coming up to speed on the IRA, can you just talk about the opportunity it provides for solving climate and and what's in it?
2: Absolutely. And thanks for having me, John. Uh, And I want to welcome everybody to um, the Team Elizabeth show uh, this afternoon um, back in August 2022, as uh, uh, as Scott was just saying about six months ago, Congress passed and the President signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which has hundreds of billions of dollars in it for energy security and climate provisions. And this is on top of the bipartisan infrastructure bill that had been signed. Uh, last uh, November-December that included tens of billions of dollars in pro-climate investments in transmission, electric charging stations, and and, uh, resilience spending. So at EDF, we think about these two bills in tandem because many of the provisions work together. Uh, Because the IRA is so much bigger, most of my comments will focus there, but just keep in mind that both of these bills included impressive funding levels for climate related policies. So as I focus on the IRA, uh, as as John said, I want to give you a quick overview of some of the areas that we're particularly focused on. I think one of the biggest challenges for this package is just the scale of it. It is a big bill with a lot of moving pieces. It's got lots of money in it. you know, I think I'm pretty familiar with it. And every now and then I still stumble across a provision that 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 I didn't know was in it. Um, and and the big amounts of money it kind of skew our thinking. Uh back in the fall, I was talking to somebody about the USDA conservation provisions here, and this person was was sad because it only had $20 billion. Now, $20 billion is a lot of money for conservation. Um, it's just when you put it against the the whole bill, it, it, it sometimes feels, it feels smaller. Um, so let me talk about a couple of the key provisions. Uh, tax provisions do make up the bulk of these investments and they will result in the bulk of the emissions reductions. Um, I'm going to set that aside and let uh, my, my uh, friend Elizabeth Kraus focus on those pieces. But just to keep in mind that is really the backbone of this package. Some of the other areas that we at EDF are focused on that I flag for this for this uh, gathering. One is the methane emissions reduction program which charges a fee on certain methane emissions. This is the first time we're putting a price on greenhouse gas emissions and so this is an area where EDF is really focused. The second is the greenhouse gas reduction fund. This is still under development. We're expecting some information as early as this week about what uh, what that might look like. It's uh, housed at EPA um, and will likely be providing funds to both community organ- um, CDFIs and state green banks and other. Uh, with other grant and loan guarantee programs. So there's that is still a bit of work in progress, but we think has the opportunity to really uh, jumpstart some additional investments that can be leveraged. Uh, There are grants to EJ communities, which uh, address areas that are overburdened with pollution, really important in in today's landscape, and then there's also, uh, of course, investments in manufacturing that we'll be talking about later, later in the conversation. In terms of process, um, you know, agencies are frantically working to implement the provisions of this package. It includes writing regulations, providing guidance, taking other administrative steps to allow these programs to actually function and get the dollars out the door. The administration is acutely aware that they are uh, on a time clock here and they want to jumpstart the benefits of all these great provisions. Groups like, like mine, EDF, were actively engaged here in providing technical expertise as well as pushing you know, for detailed provisions that we believe are going to drive emissions down in an equitable way and as quickly as possible a lot of these agencies are trying to get input more proactively than we've seen in the past. Um, and for our, from our experience, they've been eager to hear from, from our technical experts, especially because now in some cases they're working on issues that are a little bit outside their lane. As Elizabeth will mention, you know, Treasury is now the biggest climate agency in the federal government, and EPA is setting up things like this, uh, this um. uh, Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which is a little bit uh, not quite the way they uh, uh, usually operate. Meanwhile, we've got states that are working to figure out how best to access these funds. The infrastructure bill that I mentioned had a lot of money that flowed through state capitals because historically that's how transportation dollars flow. For the IRA, it's a little bit different. There are certainly grants available to states and cities and you know that just takes a, some education and capacity. So we're working at, in some key states where we've got boots on the ground to try and make sure that we can uh, move that forward. Um, let me talk for a minute uh, about some barriers uh, that we see as, as we watch this unfold. The first one I'll mention is siting and permitting. You know this applies to all green projects, but especially to transmission, we have a huge need to to transform our electric grid and right now it takes too long it's too unpredictable and it's too uncertain so that's a real barrier as we look to implementation. Second, a trained workforce Uh, the build out required to address this challenge. You know, is highly incentivized by this legislation, but we see this constraint of a shortage of electricians and plumbers and other trained workers. The bill includes lots of adders for you know for, for efforts for apprenticeships for for job training, but those provisions still have a pipeline to them, and the demand is happening right now. And then the third uh, the, the the third challenge I'd mention is supply chains, which I, I think a lot of you can. Uh, relate to uh, supply chains are struggling right now, and companies are feeding, facing both shortages and uncertainty. While the emphasis on domestic content really has the benefit of creating new jobs and building manufacturing base, it's also uh, uh, creating some short term challenges. You know, the last thing I'll say is I don't want to end on a negative note as we talk about these barriers. In the last several months, this law, this new um, plan has helped to create hundreds of thousands of jobs and has spurred billions of dollars of private investment. Um, So the challenges we have in many ways are, are good news challenges. It's because we are moving forward that we have these barriers. So I am optimistic about the path forward and I look forward to the conversation today with all of you. So, yeah, John, I'll shoot it back to you.
0: No, I appreciate it, Elizabeth. Before we get it to taxes and Elizabeth Krauss, you know, I think for folks that aren't familiar with Washington, one of the unique things the administration did is they actually brought the implementation uh quarterback into the White House. So you have John Podesta, who, if folks aren't don't know who John Podesta is, definitely check him out. But he's a bureaucrat's nightmare because he really holds folks accountable in terms of moving the ball forward so it's not you know the the bureaucracy that's going to slow roll this they're driving because they know they've got it as you said a shot clock to make this happen are you seeing that type of leadership uh, affect the momentum at the agencies
2: absolutely I mean I think that um, you know you're exactly right about John Podesta he's very good at his job and he is hammering on these agencies to move forward. And one of the things that um, we've seen is a setting of priorities right, in terms of trying to push some of these pieces more quickly than others. This is an enormous package, as I said, and uh, John Podesta is helping to make sure that people are keeping their eye on the ball and moving these things, um, all these various processes quickly and efficiently. So it's absolutely making a big difference, but it's a big, big job.
0: Yeah. And I guess a challenger to folks in the webinar and and the listeners of the podcast is as this starts to move to the state level, making sure you're playing a role in bringing your voice into those conversations. So a lot of the industry groups, whether it be the SIAs or affiliates and others are going to be having state capital days where you definitely, your voice matters in these conversations. If you want to see things implemented that, you know, we can actually execute on. So I do want to move into the tax space. And I think uh, folks know that, you know, energy policy in the US is tax policy. Mm -hmm. And that just got amplified in this legislation. So Elizabeth Krauss, I was hoping, you know, obviously, we'll get into the adders that came out yesterday. But if you could provide sort of a little bit of a coverage of the opportunity that came out of this legislation, as well as sort of the process and barriers we're going to see moving forward in the tax space.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I completely agree, John. Energy policy is tax policy these days. And thanks so much for joining us today, everybody on the line. And and thanks, John, for the invitation. Really glad to be here. Uh, So, you know, just to level set really quickly, you know, what we're really talking about when we're thinking about electricity tax credits here are just a few provisions, right? There's the Section 45 production tax credit, which everyone's used to thinking about as the wind credit. Well, it's the solar credit now, too. Um, that's based on production of electricity. And then there's also the Section 48 ITC, the investment tax credit that everyone's been used to in solar for many years now. The ITC is also what comes into play for storage, right? And now we no longer have to twin the solar and the storage. We can actually just account for them separately. After a couple of years, we're gonna have these two new credits, which are sort of, I think of them as the Wyden credits because Senator Wyden's been pushing for them for many years. Basically, they are electricity tax credits, just like the ITC, just like the PTC, but they're based on zero emissions, zero carbon emissions. And so will solar qualify? Yeah, probably. Um, Storage also gets its own separate category in the ITC after those years. It's a good idea to keep an eye on the new credits that are coming into play. It's not going to be just a cliff. You know, everything after 2025, after 2024 is just under the new credits, But it is a good thing to keep in mind because the process will be a little different for for the current credits and the new credits. Storage, obviously, like I mentioned, it's still an ITC thing. There's no PTC for storage. Uh, Next slide, please. The other really radical thing that we've got under the IRF for the tax credits is we've got this totally new idea of how we calculate tax credits. And this really tracks through with the adders and the multipliers and all this new complication that we have. And so keep in mind here that we've got this low base number. For the ITC, it's 6%. For the PTC, it's like you know a fraction of a cent uh, per kilowatt hour. That low base is sort of an unrealistic thing. It's sort of like thinking about the 10% ITC for solar that we've had for years. No one ever really used it, right? Because it was so low that it didn't really have enough punch. So don't really think about the low base as a realistic thing. Think about the wage and apprenticeship multiplier. That's how you get to the 30% ITC. That's how you get to the current PTC rates. Um, and that's really what we're seeing in the market. Everyone's directed towards that, which is why wage and apprenticeship is on, every, on the tip of everyone's tongue right now. And then we've got these adders that John mentioned a couple of minutes ago, right? For domestic content and then for energy communities. Um, we'll, I think we're gonna talk about those a little bit later. And then the new guidance that was released yesterday, um, this Scott referred to earlier, has to do with this low income or Indian land sort of category um, that really it's really only for small systems, less than five megawatts. And so what we're really talking about there is, is some CNI, um, community solar and, and RESI basically. But, but if you can combine all of those things, you can get to a really high impact note that the low income and Indian lands adder is only for the ITC okay so you can get up to a 70% ITC with all those adders you can only get to 120% of the base of the regular rate for PTC though um, because the PTC doesn't have that low income or Indian lands adder so
0: Elizabeth just for folks not familiar PTC is production tax credit and it's mostly right. used in, in the wind space versus ITC, which is used in the solar. Right.
3: Space. Like, yeah, like I mentioned, it's most people think about it as the wind credit, right? Because that's really the only thing it's been used for for the last 10 or 12 years. Actually, the PTC used to be available for solar and now it's available again for solar. What we're seeing in the market is While some people are thinking about sort of the obvious locations of the country as being a candidate for solar PTC, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, stuff like that, we're actually seeing um, clients think about the PTC much more holistically as sort of a a one major factor in the financial calculations. So if you can get your construction costs down, the PTC starts to make more sense because it's really just a matter of comparing the basis, which is what you get for investment tax credit against your production, which is what you get for production tax credit, right? So yeah, thank you for pointing that out, John. Um, I think we can dispense with the slides at this point. Just wanted to do a little bit of table setting there so we're all on the same page. As far as where we're at, um, you know, John, you asked about process and so forth. We've got the statutes, they've been around for six months. We're starting to get into this regulatory process, right? Notice that there haven't actually been any regulations released yet. We've had notices, several of them, wage and apprenticeship was released on November 30th last year that was released as a notice the ones that were released yesterday notices right the key thing there is that notices are not subject to a public comment period and so what the IRS can do what Treasury can do when they release notices is they basically say this is what the rule is going to be no you don't get to participate in a public comment period but on the other hand tell us what you think right they don't tell you that outright but they are still listening. Um, and, you know- it, just, so
0: I'm, just so people are clear, yeah. so what they're saying, if there's a rulemaking process. There's very defined public comment periods, which take could take months and slash years to get done. Yeah. Uh, in this case, it's a notification which says, this is what it's going to be. People can still influence it. And uh-huh. I imagine you, you and others are in the room on that, uh, yeah. but it's less of a bureaucratic uh, delay so we can get it in place.
3: Well, yeah, basically, and that's really the point here, notices are faster. Notices are a way to deal with these hard deadlines that we had in the statute, as well as the soft deadlines that Mr. Podesta is imposing, um, not Congress. We will get to regulations, right? Um, Most of the fall, many of us in the industry spent writing comment letters to the Treasury in response to public requests for comments. Those comments are being taken into account in drafting these notices. They're being taken into account and in drafting the regulations that we will eventually get. We will get regulations. It's just a matter of when, because they take longer to formulate and to and to release and then fi- finalize. So those are coming. What we have right now are wages and apprenticeship, the low income and in Indian lands, at least initial notice. For those of you who read it, you'll see that you know, I, I'm kind of doubting this is gonna be the last word on that program, okay? Um, and then there was also a notice released yesterday for the 48c manufacturing tax credit, which is an application appropriations-based process. We still need, and I think everyone in the industry is eagerly awaiting guidance on the domestic content adder, the energy communities adder. We, need, we still need some new comprehensive regulations just on qualification for 45 and 48, the PTC and ITC. So the point there is, we will get something actually treasury's been working on those regs for several years now it's just a matter of finalizing them and i think the other one that a lot of people in energy are worried about is hydrogen so those will come it's just not going to come tomorrow
0: <laughs> yeah and i think from a if i'm a, if i'm a developer understanding that that uncertainty still exists as folks are looking to finance these projects and you know understanding how that can be incorporated into a deal or uh, the capitalization of your projects is really important because there there will be uncertainty for a while uh, until there's clarity. And you know, from a financing perspective, it's important that you know we have that conversation back and forth with the developers so they're aware of that, and you know we can solve for that that problem. So uh, first of all, I want to challenge folks to keep the Q and A coming. We are going to answer some of them in uh, in along with the questions. Some I may type in here as well uh elizabeth elizabeth gore i want to get into a sec a conversation around the simulation of both manufacturing and now based on one of the questions i'm going to add jobs in there as well mm-hmm. there are certain provisions uh, that are incentivized u.s manufacturing as you said the supply chain challenges are real if you want to buy an american-made solar panel right now it's actually pretty challenging uh but we want to see more and more of that obviously the administration's championing that and so are many others in congress um what you know, what are some of the key pieces that are driving manufacturing and what should folks be looking at? Uh, And then I'm gonna sort of second in terms of jobs and apprenticeships, you know, what are some of the provisions that if I'm looking to move into this industry, for instance, I could be taking advantage of?
2: Yeah. So manufacturing is a big part of the bill. Um, Elizabeth was just mentioning the 48C piece, which is competitive tax credit. Uh, This is something that's been around for a while, but really received additional funding and expanded portfolio of qualifying projects, Um, and that one, like so many others in this bill, includes these labor-related requirements in order to get the full value of it. So that's kind of an intersection of this manufacturing piece and, and the job labor piece. Um, There's also an advanced manufacturing production tax credit, which is, uh, you know, for clean energy production, like wind turbines, solar pieces. And then we've got DOE loan guarantee office, which had been a little bit dormant for a while. It got a boost uh, in this bill for 1703 projects. That's a pretty broad list. And I think the infusion of dollars there is really good news. Um, Listen, I I think that there are these domestic content provisions, these labor provisions that are sprinkled throughout the bill, they are going to shift supply chain, and they are going to drive additional domestic manufacturing. I just think that they are robust enough to actually change um, behavior in a real way. Uh, As you mentioned, the short-term impact is real um, in terms of both supply and price, um, you know, there is a tension here. Um, I think the administration is really trying to smooth out that transition. Um, we all have seen the two-year break on the solar panel tariffs that the administration is pushing. And while that's hitting a little bit of static on Capitol Hill, that's going to stay in place and help to create this bridge. The White House has talked about the solar bridge. Um, and I think the administration's also looking at creative ways to phase in those EV domestic content provisions again. There's still some uh, more to come there, but um, I, you know, I think that the administration is, is trying to find ways that they can um, make it easier so that we can address some of the dislocation that you are referencing. And, and, and I would also say on the labor, you know, the apprenticeships, again, sprinkled throughout the bill in a way uh, that is going to, to change the, um, the behavior of, of developers and of um, companies that are taking advantage of these credits. Uh, so I, I think it was very intentional the way that it was structured, and I think we'll see more, more happening there.
0: Yeah, Yeah. for folks that are not as familiar with the politics of climate, uh, you know, this was definitely, there was a lot of conversation with the unions for the first time really coming into this bill, and we're seeing that play out in the prevailing wages and other other important pieces. And it's actually, honestly, it's great for the industry to get them on as champions for what we care about, because when Mm -hmm. they were looking at things like pipelines, it created a lot of jobs for them, so often they would champion a pipeline. Uh, We want them championing solar and wind just as strongly, so...
2: Yeah, absolutely. i just highlight, you know, there's a group called the Blue-Green Alliance, which is uh, labor unions and environmental groups coming together and trying to find that overlap of things that they can work together on. This is uh, coming actually out of Waxman-Markey, where those two um, segments were not aligned. And, um, you know, I sit on the board of that association, and it's 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 a great uh, way that that uh, the politics have been knitted together here to be able to um, push forward uh, on these um, on these policies, just as John mentioned. So yeah. Elizabeth
0: Cross, I'm going to get into you know the, the adders came out some of the adder language notification came out yesterday, so we can talk a little bit about that before we do that. Just a table set, you know, looking at some of the questions coming in. Um, uh, there is a focus on prevailing wages, there's a focus on uh, low moderate income communities, mm-hmm. really driving climate justice. Uh, and, you know, as you, as you dive into the what came out yesterday, can you t- also talk a little bit about, you know, how things like the Department of Labor's guidance will tie into the mm-hmm. Treasury guidance, and mm-hmm. if it does, and mm-hmm. how, um, as we sort of explore the address portion of the bill.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the where you have to start, right, is the prevailing wage and apprenticeship adder, right? And I think you know, Elizabeth, I completely agree with Elizabeth Gore. Adding those provisions was a stroke of political genius, hundred um, percent. And it's creating problems <laughs> for for me <laughs> and other practitioners because we're helping clients try to figure out how to navigate them. Now, there, there are pathways, all right. Don't get me wrong. We have a notice that came out on November 30th. It's woefully incomplete. Um, It really needs to be expanded. There are so many niche areas, but we do have resources, right? We have the Department of Labor published two FAQs, one on prevailing wage, one on apprenticeship. We know now that prevailing wages were in the rules In the way that they were drafted, because the Bird rule prohibits the just basically saying, go follow all the prevailing wage rules for government contracts. We can't just do that in the statute. So we know that's a guiding light, right? We know that the government contract rules around prevailing wage are a guiding light. We know that the government contract rules around apprenticeship are a guiding light. So we have resources. What we don't have is Treasury just coming out and saying, look, just go look at those other areas and figure it out. Um, but that's what everyone's doing because we don't really have a choice, um, at this point, you know, I'm talking with some clients about going back and taking another stab at treasury and saying, please, could you give us a little more here so that we have a little bit more certainty because the worst part of contracting is where you don't have certainty. And so you just have a lot of nervousness and, and contingencies and so forth. Now, the other adders, right. Um, maybe a little less important in the grand scheme, right? Because they're not quite so crucial to getting a financeable tax credit rate, but they're still an important thing because it's real money on the table, right? Domestic content, that's an additional 10% ITC. That is something, and it's worth fighting for. Domestic content is kind of complicated. We've got two buckets, right? There's steel and iron, which is basically structural steel, we think. Um, And then we've got manufactured products, the steel and iron part is actually a little easier to grapple with. Um, we do have US steel supply. Is it enough? No, but but we are seeing advancement. We're seeing increases in production already. And, and were frankly, before the IRA too, because of supply chain problems with the pandemic. Um, manufactured product is really hard. It's really hard. We really don't know what they're gonna do. There are different ways that they could take this. And, you know, I mean, to Elizabeth's point, depending on how they take it, there's this real tension between creating U.S. jobs broadly, creating U.S. manufacturing base broadly, and creating more clean energy, right? There's a real tension there. And so, you know, while my masochistic side would love to be at Treasury writing these rules right now, (laughs) on the other hand, maybe I'll sleep better if I'm not. (laughs) Um, By the way, it's
0: also, you know, as you get into what what defines manufacturing, right? Are you talking about Right so, pa- panel from ground up or is this assembly of different components exactly like, how th- a how manufactured
3: that, that- product is that your whole inverter is it is it the whole panel is it just the silicon cell right we don't know we don't there know you. and and that how they slice and dice what when i'm looking at something on my desk or on my table or at my site identifying what that manufactured product is and then identifying when I can call that made in the US, that's crucial, Uh, and that's gonna have massive ramifications. So, I mean, I don't know that there is one right answer, but someone's gonna have to come up with an answer, um, to be be honest. Um, Then the last really consequential adder is is the energy communities adder. There are three categories there. There's brownfields within the EPA definition, you know my policy group lobbied for that was really happy about that what they got it but now we're going to go through this process in EPA about what brownfields are right um the rules are being cracked open again and so there are some questions there as far as implementation is concerned um we've also got uh Can two I, just explain
0: it for mm-hmm. as someone who does brownfields and clean capital like we see with our partner bq they actually did not i think unintentionally didn't actually push the the most um uh I, i'm gonna get the terminology wrong but the sort of worst sites like the worst sites are not incentivized here like they should be just exactly is a previous definition exactly of brownfields exactly um, and, and exactly c- clearly that was not the intent but it's likely because this has happened so fast there was some, i assume some copying and pasting of previous previous language to put put in there but once it's once the bill's a bill it's how you yeah how you well I, it down. there's a
3: certain amount of political jockeying right as elizabeth Gore can well tell us right Um, you know, where you got to get something in there, like you said, it's fast, it's furious, get something in there and we'll figure it out later. We will figure out a way. It will be fine. We will figure out a way. Um, The other two categories, One is really closely tied to coal mining and coal-fired generation. It's tied to census tracts and adjacent census tracts. We have a good idea, a good playbook of how that works out. We have some federal government resources as well as just publicly available resources. There's a third category that's harder it's tied to things like transportation and production and so forth of gas, oil, and, and coal. That, that's difficult, right, because we don't have good, solid, reliable federal data that ties neatly to the categories in the statute. So there are some good ideas about what to use. And we've, you know, working with clients, we've established some things. They've provided input. We've we found a way forward, but I can't tell anyone that it's the right way forward until we have guidance. Um, and then, sort of, the last adders are these ones for small solar and small wind, less than five megawatts. That's what's, what was released yesterday. There are a couple of different categories. The sort of basic one is locating a facility in a low income area. That's using, I believe, NMTC, New Markets Tax Credit um, guidance, as far as what a low-income area is, and then also Indian lands within the federal definition. So that's, that's a really interesting additional credit. It is application-based. Um, I understand that a lot of people are up in arms about the notice yesterday because, you know, honestly, it probably does favor community solar. It probably does favor like the two to five megawatt range of projects. And the smaller resi stuff, the small, even the smaller low-income rooftop stuff, it's going to be maybe a little harder to get, unfortunately. I'm not sure that, that was intentional. Maybe it was. Um, but regardless, we don't have complete guidance yet. I mean, what was released yesterday was sort of a placeholder, honestly. That's how I would characterize it. Um, it, it clearly says there will be more guidance as far as what the application data will be. And applications aren't even going to be accepted until Q3 this year, so there's still more work to be done there. Um, the way to get more money out of that one too is to either do low-income rooftop or some kind of a an economic benefit to the residences of a low-income area. You know, we've seen that. I've personally seen that with some projects out in Seattle that have to do with um, federal housing. Because there are rules in the federal housing regulations about economic benefits to the residences. So I think that was probably intended to tie neatly. Um, and so we know we know we can do it. It's just a matter of getting those final regulations from Treasury so that we know exactly what we're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh
0: I'm gonna stick stick to taxes for a second, Elizabeth. Uh, and I am going to get into transferability first, uh, which is Clearly, an important question. Before we do that, though, if, if I'm a developer out there today and I'm looking at all these different provisions, it's almost like there's all these different menus of options, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the clarity is only starting to now come together and how they tie together. Will a firm like Kano Gates at some point like put out a roadmap to say, look, if you're going to build, build a project, you should consider doing this? Like, how, how would it, how, should they, con- like, if you were a developer, how would you start to understand this so you can figure out where you should be focusing on the projects themselves? Or strategy. Have, you, have a yeah.
3: out? Yeah. you know, we've been doing a lot of work with clients around strategy right now, and it's a little different for every company. I mean, yeah. we that the development roadmap, even for small solar, right? It varies from company to company to a certain extent, and it can take a while. And so like, there are, um, there are, there are folks out there, development shops that already have a good idea of their strategy, their regional strategy. Right. And so maybe it's just a matter of sort of honing, their site selection process or something along those lines, or, or plucking sites they've already identified out of their portfolio and sort of segregating them into a different bucket. Um, But beyond that, sort of the strategy about how to go about the financing process, how to go about the tax credit qualification, you know, procurement's a big deal, right? Um, We've got a whole lot of questions and a whole lot of different concepts around how we approach the contractual provisions for wage and apprenticeship. How we identify the right people, how we identify the wages, how we secure indemnification. There's also strategies around procurement of material when we figure out domestic content. Energy communities are a little easier. That's that's really just sort of like an you're in, you're or you're out. But that sort of strategy process, it's hard to just create a roadmap, you know, because it's going to be a little different. I mean, I can give you a timeline. <laughs> but there's right. going to be a lot of different factors that go into that process. So
0: no, that's helpful. Um, just to sort of tee up for the audience, please keep your questions coming. Uh, I am going to get into transferability. Then I'm going to Elizabeth Gore, come back to you on storage here momentarily. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Elizabeth cross my, my partner, Tom, was down in New Orleans at a project finance conference uh, just at the end of January, and he, he came back and said, all people were talking about is transferability. Yep. Uh, you know, for folks that are not familiar with what transferability is, uh, could you just give a little bit of an overview of it and like how it should affect the market
3: here? Yeah, everyone's talking about transfer. Um, the single thing that made my eyes pop the most, the Inflation Reduction Act, was the provision that says you can sell tax credits. That's what transfer is. Um, you know, my entire career and before we've labored under this concept that you have to be an owner of a project directly or indirectly through a partnership in order to claim tax credits. And that's driven a lot, a lot of the work around tax credits. Now that we can transfer, what that means is that in principle, you have a lot more options, right? You have the ability to create essentially financial instruments around tax credits, and that's a big game changer. Now, it doesn't mean that the old style of financing is gonna go away. There's still definitely a place for the old partnership models, partnership flips, all that fun stuff. Um, But what I think we're gonna see now is more and more finance players involved in project acquisition, and then transferring the tax credits. Transfer means, a dollar for a tax credit basically, right? Cash for credits, it's that simple. Now, there's a whole bunch of detail baked into that, right? Because the person who buys the tax credits becomes the taxpayer for those tax credits vis-a-vis the IRS. That means if it's an ITC and you have recapture potential, they're facing the IRS. So what does that mean for the developer or the project owner? They're still facing the transferee as a regular tax equity investor. There's still risk there that the developer or the project owner is going to have to wear under the contract. Um, PTCs so just so consider- just so
0: be clear, like so, mm-hmm. I as a corporation, if I was a corporation, uh, maybe by the Supreme Court, corporations we can make us. you a corporation. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I tax credit capability. I could sell it to Elizabeth Gore, who then could use it within the ITC, but then she's just taking the risk of that. Ability. yeah i would i i no longer really am investing in solar here but she is using my tax
3: credits that's basically right yeah yeah, yeah. so nice. it's 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 not totally dissimilar from the traditional way we just don't have to worry about ownership anymore we yeah. don't have to worry about ownership for a tax purpose and, and uh, we, let, we let we let a lot
0: of cfos of corporations who just say look, this is not our specialty right but yeah i'll sell you my tax credit like you, yeah you take that risk so yeah.
3: Basically, yeah, but a um, couple of things to keep in mind, right? Um, we still have the risk issue that we have to deal with in contracts, appropriate indemnities, tax credit insurance to, has an even bigger role to play now, I think. Um, and then we also have to remember that you can only transfer it once, right? Okay? So all these financial instruments and and concepts that could that are growing up around transfer already, you know, bundling them, maybe creating pools. So that if, for example, you've sold your tax credits on a forward basis to somebody else and you don't come up with their minimum, you can have access to a pool perhaps. But you still only have to you can only transfer once. And so there's going to be some pressure there around what the IRS guidance is going to be, what constitutes transfer. We have a lot of educated guesses we can make based on guidance in a lot of other areas there's going to be some pressure there. I think what's really important for the audience really to think about here is transfer opens up whole new worlds for financing solar and wind and hydrogen and storage and all this fun stuff. But it's not without risk. It's not free money. And you do need to understand that there will be a discount. You're not going to get a dollar per credit. You're going to get cash but it's not going to be a dollar per credit. Um and there's also going to be some timing delays we think. Um you know, pending guidance. We think there'll be some timing delays. You're not going to be able to monetize as early as you do in a regular tax credit structure. So,
2: you know, That's when not we notice. look when yeah. we've looked at the transferability piece, I mean from our perspective, it also um to your point Elizabeth opens up entities that don't have a tax liability and previously had no incentives yes. to try and engage in 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 this kind of development so co-ops or um, municipalities mm-hmm. or all of these other power producers have new incentives that they couldn't access before and so yeah. it, it opens it widens the lens in a way that from a perspective of an environmental group is very hopeful mm-hmm in pushing these forward.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Direct pay is a whole nother huge innovation, Elizabeth. I think, thank you for mentioning that. You know, I have a client in the muni space, muni transit of all things. um, And they're super excited about direct pay because their attitude is government needs to lead the charge on some of this stuff. And their hands have been tied to date when it comes to tax credits. Community groups, we, I have another client out in Seattle that does all sorts of low income, tiny solar, tiny, tiny solar, and it's always been difficult for them to do anything with tax credits because they needed a third party. Well, this is a whole new world for them. Um, now we have all sorts of new people at the table. It's not just a handout for banks. <laughs> it actually is going to work, I think, for a lot of people across the country.
0: Excellent. And I want to end, you know, before we get some closing comments, we've we talked a lot about solar and a lot about a variety of pieces. I mean, we're we're missing so much in, cl- in terms of climate justice, and there's so many exciting things we can dive into here. But I do want to hit on storage for a second because this is, you know, a monumental bill and really moving the storage industry forward. Um, can you just talk a little bit about some of the provisions that are in here that are going to help uh, accelerate both the manufacturing and, and really the the deployment of storage?
2: Yeah, sure. So the U.S. needs to build hundred gigawatts of energy storage by 2030, some something on that magnitude in order to meet our climate goals. And after being overlooked uh, for years by policymakers as they focused on wind and solar, you know, I, f- I feel like this bill, storage friendly made it up to, to the grownups table, which in a way that is really important and um, is gonna help leverage all these other investments. Um, So, as Elizabeth mentioned earlier, standalone storage products are eligible for the the new ATC, so it's not just those that are connected to other projects. And direct pay is going to help uh, storage as it will with other policies as well. Um, The domestic manufacturing provisions and domestic content policies we think are going to boost energy storage, and we've also seen some private investments in this space since the bill was signed. So you know, just the bill—the bill, the bill um, on its own is, is is sort of leveraging and jumpstarting some of those um, some of those markets. And you know, we talked a little bit about the um, the the loan guarantee pro, uh, program over at DOE last June. As probably already know, DOE announced its first loan guarantee in like a decade. Uh, that was for an energy storage project in utah so as this program gets more funding and more interest from the administration in utilizing that tool i think we're going to see more and more projects like that um as we try and you know push push some of these renewable projects forward as well
0: yeah. many of you guys know our good friend jigger shaw who's helping to quarterback that at doe uh, if you don't know Jigger, you've probably not been around clean energy, but uh, it, it, having leaders like that across the industry are going to help drive the change we need uh, in getting this bill in place. Um, and you're just closing comments. I wanted to, first of all, thank everyone for the questions. I'm sorry we did not get to get to all of them, uh, but I tried to incorporate as many as I could into the, the dialog Um we'll start with you, Elizabeth Cross. Any yeah, I things? mean, I think
3: just really in closing, we've got a lot of opportunities on the Inflation Reduction Act. There are details. There are gray areas. We're working through them. Um, But there are a ton of opportunities here. And I think, you know, there's a lot of promise for the energy transition in the U.S. There's a lot of promise for communities here, too. Um, And it's all up to us to, you know, try to move the ball ahead, you know, try to work with the financing parties, get them used to the new concepts, get them used to the new asset classes, and and work together to to make this happen.
0: Excellent. Elizabeth Gore
2: so um we see this as transformational and i think there are a lot of details yet to come as elizabeth just mentioned but i think we're already seeing the impacts of the bills we see some of these investments coming down the pike i would also say um that the that the focus on these um energy communities and on frontline communities again It may have been a political move in terms of trying to build this coalition, but it really broadens out the support that we are seeing. Um, There have been more investments in red uh, communities than in blue ones. And so again, we're seeing um, the benefits of the clean energy transition really spread out in in places that I think are going to help to build durability and to build um, support for additional steps. You know, Credit Suisse put out a a study that showed how this bill can leverage investment. Um, And while the Europeans have been um, a a little bit unhappy about some of the um, domestic content provisions and domestic manufacturing provisions, um, they're now uh, kind of getting on board here and building out their own industries in a way that's going to continue to drive down prices. So. Um, I think this this bill is is, is an enormous opportunity to really uh, transform the economy and make it a clean energy economy. Um, and, and I don't think it's all going to be because of the bill. I think it's going to be that bill is a catalyst to making a lot of other um, a, a lot of other activity happen.
0: Yeah. Uh, th- well, thank you to both Elizabeth and uh, as uh, you know. I think it's really important for folks to recognize this is a once in a generational piece of legislation that we've seen. And for the whole different podcast for another time, and you marry this to the uh, the uh, infrastructure bill that was done just prior to it, you know, it aligns things so perfectly for our industry to continue to accelerate, to cl- solve the climate crisis. Uh, when they had a White House signing in September, I remember Tom Steyer making a comment about the fact that this is the, this is the government handing this over to the private sector and saying, go. Uh, but those rules are being put in place now. It's imp- incumbent on all of us to take action so that we can make sure that the rules are working for us as an industry. So when groups are asking you to take part in, in dialogues or maybe to write an op-ed locally or whatever, please make that effort because we need to have our voice in this conversation to get, uh, get the rule book we need to be able to execute. Thank you to everyone for joining. Thank you to the team at Cano Gates and the EDI Environmental Defense Fund for helping uh, put this together, as well as the team at Clean Capital. Scott Elias, thank you for uh, opening this up. And uh, for our producers, uh, Colleen Young and Carly Batten, as always, for the experts only podcast, you can get more at cleancapital.com. Really appreciate you joining us and look forward to continuing the conversation.
3: Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>